This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. To take your Bibles now and turn over to Galatians, the third chapter. And as you do that this morning, I want to start off this particular text with a question. And that question is this. How does one have an abiding relationship with God? I'm talking about an authentic relationship with God. One that is real. One that is sure. One that is secure. One that is forever. That's the question every person in every age inevitably asks. Maybe there's a time in their life where that's not of interest. Maybe as a, as a skeptic in their youth or cynicism because of things that they've seen around them. But there comes a place in everyone's life where they ponder that question and they long for an answer. How can you have a real relationship with God? What does it take? In the history of man, as you examine every religious system, every moral system that has been presented, there are two answers that come forth. Just two. We think there's hundreds of different answers, but the reality is, is they all can be reduced to two very simple answers. One to the, to the question, how can I have an abiding relationship with God? One of the answers is simply by faith. The embrace of belief. The other is an answer of works, a life of effort, a life of self-justification. Now there have been times throughout human history where different groups have tried to combine both. They've tried to combine both faith and works to this establishment of a relationship with God, but the reality is, is when anyone examines past the surface, goes deeper than just Melrose Avenue, you find that those two systems are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. The path to God is either by faith or it's by self-justification by works. You know, in the province of Galatia in the year 49 A.D., a battle was taking place over this very controversy. That's what we've been looking at and examining. The churches that had been established in that province, made up of both Gentile and Jewish believers, had come to a place where they believed that the path to God was by faith. But now there had been some teachers who had come from Jerusalem. These men who were Jewish in their background and in their heritage and in their culture. And they had said, yes, you do believe in Jesus Christ. They had accepted that as well. But on top of that, they said that that relationship had to be earned and maintained through a self-justified life. Namely, through obedience to law. And in particular, the law of Moses. And so a controversy quickly developed among these young believers who didn't have the resources and the assets of looking back. They were just simply looking forward into this new faith called Christianity. And as that controversy erupted and people began to be unsettled in their relationship with God. Paul penned this letter 
the letter to the Galatians, this province, it was a letter of clarification asserting no, that the relationship, the door, the path to God was simply by faith. And to prove his point, he makes a number of assertions. Now in Galatians 3, the assertion that he's making at this point in time is around the person of Abraham. And as Dan talked about last week, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, now is called forth to be a witness that the path to God is by faith. And Paul says that's how he had his door open to this relationship with God. And he quotes the Old Testament Scripture which says, and Abraham believed God. And simply on that belief, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. fact is, he said that even the nation itself was a matter of faith too, because God said to Abraham, He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And all Abraham had to do was just simply believe that that would be true and that God would grant it to him. So Paul says, faith is the way to God. But now these Jewish teachers who had come down into Antioch, into the province Galatian, countered Paul by saying, you know, Paul, it may be true that a relationship to God was once purely by faith, our father Abraham. And he did in fact make a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation. But after that great nation was formulated, God came back and He made a new contract. Because that's what the word covenant means. And this new contract was made to another one of our great fathers, Moses. It was the Mosaic Covenant. And that covenant was hundreds of years later after the covenant was made to Abraham. And that covenant said the way to God is by obedience to law. And since it was the later covenant, that later covenant nullified the former. It was a new agreement, a new contract, a new covenant. And so when you come into Galatians 3, the issue that's before us, and we'll find some real personal application for ourselves as we go through it, but the real question starting in verse 15 is this. You might just jot it down in your outline. Here's the question to help you understand the text. Which covenant rules? At this point in time, at this place in history, which covenant rules our relationship with God? It's a super serious question with eternal ramifications, by the way. Is it the one that God made with Abraham earlier? Or is it the one God made with Moses later? Now before we look at our text, let me define the word covenant for you. This is not my definition. This is the definition that comes out of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. But let me just give you the definition real quickly. You don't have to jot it down. Just listen to it. Here's what it says. A covenant is a divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. It's a divinely imposed legal agreement, a contract, that establishes the way God and man will relate to one another. Now the key words in that definition is divinely imposed, because when you make a contract with God, you have no negotiating power. Okay, He does the negotiating, he sets forth the terms, the conditions of the contract of how you're going to relate to Him. Man doesn't understand it in our superficial age. We adjust to God, not vice versa. And then you either sign the contract or enter into the covenant based on His conditions, or you just simply reject it and go your own independent way. That's the basis of a covenant. 
Now, to really understand our text this morning, because the first half is fairly technical, it's important that you have a grasp of the three major covenants. Okay? And no one can be, as Paul said, biblically literate unless you understand the covenants. And if I were to go on the streets and say, what are the three major covenants in the Bible? Would you be able to tell me? Here's what they are. They are, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then the New Covenant. Those are the three covenants that, in a sense, govern the Scriptures and some of the things that are taking place. Those are the contracts. Now, the key person in each of these covenants, first in the Abrahamic covenant, of course, is Abraham, then Moses. In the New Covenant, it's Jesus Christ. All right? The key verse, if you wanted to jot down some key verses, look, it'd be Genesis 12, 1-3. That's the beginning of the Old Testament as far as the Jews are concerned. You talk to an Orthodox Jew, his Old Testament really begins in Genesis 12 when God makes a covenant, a contract with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great person and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make a great nation of you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In the Mosaic Covenant, it's Exodus 20. You remember, God gave the law there, the Ten Commandments. And then in the New Covenant, I've given you two verses because some people think the New Covenant is just a New Testament idea. I remember with Jack Sternberg, when we were in the one-to-one, when he was still an unbeliever, a Jew. When I told him about the New Covenant, he said, yeah, but that's you Gentiles trying to put a covenant on us. And I said, well, what if I could show you the New Covenant in the Old Testament? He said, if you could show me that, I'd believe. So we turned over to Jeremiah, and God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. Not like the one I made with Moses, but a different covenant. Okay? Key word in each of these is, first of all, the word, I will. Okay? God says, I will. In the Mosaic covenant, thou shalt. You shall do this. You shall not lie. You shall not cheat. You shall not covet. You shall have no other gods besides me. And then in the New Covenant, it's I have. Or you might also put another word, I am. That's another phrase. I am. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the Bread of Life. I am the Light of the World. The key concept in the Abrahamic Covenant is that of promise. I'm going to promise you. And that of the Mosaic Covenant, it's law. And that of the New Covenant, it's Savior. The key requirement of the Abrahamic Covenant was just simply faith. Abraham believed God. In the Mosaic Covenant, works. In the New Covenant, faith. And the focus of each of these covenants, in the Abrahamic Covenant, to bless all nations. In the Mosaic Covenant, to bless Israel. In the New Covenant, to bless all the nations. Remember Jesus, go into all the world and make disciples. Now that's how those covenants set forth. Now the question is, which one of them are still in force? Are all the contracts still in force? Because that gets confusing. Maybe you're already confused. But here's what the Judaizers, those false teachers who had come into Galatia were saying. Paul's opponents, and they were Jewish believers in Jesus, they wanted to do this. They wanted to say, no, the Abrahamic covenants no longer enforced. What's enforced today is what God gave to Moses and now in Jesus. Now, while that's up there, let me just say there's some real obvious difficulties when you explain it like that. When you put it in a a, a graft, there's some obvious problems with that. The first is, notice on the one it says, thou shalt. It's based on what you do. On the other one, it's I have. I've already done it. Notice one is of works. 
That's the kind of the key place. It's of works. You save yourself. But in the New Covenant, Jesus saved. It's of faith. And so, when do you know? When are you secure in this relationship? When I've done enough or what Jesus does? See, you kind of feel this dissonance. And there is dissonance. And that's the point. And not only that, but when you go to the Scriptures and you really look at the Scriptures, nowhere in the Scriptures does it, says, does it say that the Abrahamic covenant has passed away. But you know what? You can go to the Scriptures and find the Mosaic covenant has passed away. You can go to that Jeremiah passage. And in that Jeremiah passage, as God speaks to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah, He says, hey, days are coming. There's going to come a day when I'm going to make a new covenant even with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant in letters put on stones, but a new covenant in which I'll put My Spirit within you. And you will believe. And you'll have no one have to force you to say, know the Lord, because you'll all know the Lord. That's the new covenant. So Paul argues differently. What Paul does is he says, no, there's going to come a time where the Mosaic covenant's not enforced. Just these two covenants. And when you put them on a graph, immediately you see the connection between the two. Notice where you see the key word, I will. I'm going to do something. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. And then you come and you see the new covenant where it says, and I have blessed the whole world. I am the blessing of the whole world. When you look at the, the, the key requirement, one is by faith and the other is by faith. And the focus and the purpose is the same. It's to bless the whole world. The point is, is that those two covenants, one is just simply the extension of the other. While the Mosaic covenant was just a momentary covenant to govern the people of Israel. Now those are the arguments. Now hopefully as we do that, now let's read the text and it'll help you understand a little bit better. I'm going to walk down through the text and explain it to you because like I said, it's a little bit difficult. But notice what he says in verse 15. Brethren, I speak to you in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now we're picking up the argument. And he's talking about a covenant. And Paul is saying once a covenant, which is a binding contract which has been ratified, you can't add or subtract to it unless both parties agree to that. And you know, even from human experience, that to be true. You can't go down and buy a car and make a contract with the dealer and then later on come back and say, you know, this thing about $450 a month, I don't, that just stings too much. Let's change it. No, that doesn't work that way. Or I really wanted leather. No, you have a binding agreement. That's even in human relationships. And what he's saying is, is that if you think of it even in human terms, of these done deals, so to speak, he's saying that God has made a covenant with Abraham, and if you can find anywhere in the Scripture where that says that that's abrogated, I'll listen. But it doesn't say that. And if it doesn't say that, if the parties Abraham and God have not decided to change it, it's still in force. Now look at verse 16. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. To Abraham, not to you Jew, Jew, Judaizers, you false teachers. He hadn't changed it. But the promises were spoken to Abraham, and not only to Abraham, but to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is, to Christ. 
the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was between God, Abraham, and his seed, ultimate seed, Christ, through whom he would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and blessing the whole world. So in the Abrahamic contract, God promised the seed Christ to bless the world. In fact, in Genesis 22, it says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But now, listen very carefully, because this is very important, because there's kind of some logic going on here. Here's what he's saying. Christ came after the Mosaic Covenant. He came hundreds of years after the Mosaic Covenant, which Paul's opponents said abrogated the first covenant with the second. But if the first has been nullified by the second, and yet the third is the fulfillment of the first, then to say that the Mosaic contract cancels the first contract says it also nullifies the third, which is Christ. Does everybody see that? That's the logic that's there. In fact, he goes on and absolutely states that clearly in the very next verse. Look at verse 17. He says, what I'm saying is just simply this. Now he's going to get clear. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise that's going to come later, which is Christ. Does it? Of course not. Then he says, verse 18, for the inheritance, if it were based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God is granted to Abraham by means of a promise and that has never changed. So the point is this simply this. I've shown you that Abraham, from Abraham to Christ, the way to God is the same. By faith. By believing God. By releasing yourself to God. Paul's argument, by the way, has been hammered at for centuries. It's irrefutable. Incredible logic here. But it also brings up something else which leads us to the next verse. Paul's argument so fuses, as it should, the Abrahamic covenant with the new covenant, that is Christ, that it makes the Mosaic covenant in the middle almost look unnecessary, doesn't it? Why the law? And you know what? That is the very next question, isn't it, in verse 19? Yeah, why the law? That's a good question. Why did God even need to give the law then if it's always been by faith? Well, he gives two answers. I want you to mark up your Bibles a little bit. We're not going to go through all these verses but because the answers are very simple here. He gives two answers. One in verse 19, one in verse 24. Look at verse 19. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgression. Ah, there we go. Because of transgression. You want to underline, there's two key phrases here. First of all, he says, it was added. Didn't, it didn't say it replaced anything. It just simply was added alongside the Abrahamic covenant for a reason. And that reason is because of transgression. Now listen, if you want to write something down, write this down. God gave the law to the nation Israel to control and direct a people who refused to believe by faith. Did you hear that? You say, well, why the law? Why did God have to add it if it's always been by faith? It was by faith. People always lived by faith. We know that. But in this time where God chose a nation, that didn't mean the nation chose Him. Did it? And as we read through the Old Testament, many times they didn't choose Him. 
So he had to lay over faith law. And the reason he did is because that law controlled and directed people, his chosen people, who refused to live the same way by faith. By the way, that's the purpose of law in any society, if you think about it. Why do we have laws? It's to make people have to do what they're not willing in their own right to do, isn't it? Isn't that why we have law? In every society, it's the lack of a want to that necessitates the need for law and even further, the need for law enforcement. Henson Road. If you ever drive down Henson Road, there are street signs that say 35 miles per hour. When you drive down the road and you see that sign in your heart, a lot of times there's unbelief. And not only unbelief, but sometimes it even stirs up rebellion. You look at 35 and you go, not me. So God has to bring law enforcement. And that's why you see those motorcycles and police cars littering sometimes Henson Road and you see all your friends pulled over <laughs> and their insurance policies going up, up, up as they get ticketed for refusing to obey in their heart what's real easy for them to do, but they're just not willing to do it. So the law has to come and impose penalties to keep people in line because of their unbelief. You know, every society is built on a kind of three competing spheres. Let me just show you real quickly three competing spheres that you can just see when you look at every society, you'll see three things operating and, and there's movement going on all the time. Personal rights, individual responsibilities, and public laws. Those are three things that make up every society. Now, in a healthy society, it looks like this. It looks like this, the circles kind of change size. If you have a healthy society, what you're going to find is you have a lot of individuals who are responsible. And because they're responsible, it necessitates only the minimum of laws. And they still experience all the freedoms of personal rights. In an unhealthy society, it looks like this. As people give up being responsible, something has to fill that vacuum because the size of these three spheres is always the same capacity. So as people do less and less and want to be more and more irresponsible or rebellious, you have to either take those responsibilities and make a law to stop them or make what was wrong now or right. Isn't that true? Don't you see that in our society? Doesn't our society at times feel a lot like the bottom circle? You have to have law, though. Law is true in every society. And the question is, how do you get people to be more responsible? By making more laws? No. We've already hit the wall on that. The only way you can do it is somehow create righteousness within them so they want to do right rather than have to do right. How do you get there? Paul in the Scriptures would only say, you know, you'll only get there by faith. By faith. Now listen, just because Israel was God's chosen people didn't mean they were a believing people. 
In many occasions, as the New Testament tells us, the law was added to do away with faith as the only way to God, only because it needed to help govern and control unbelief. Because they were unbelievers. It was because of transgression that the law was given. That's the first major reason. The second major reason is in verse 24. Notice in verse 24 it says, Therefore the law has become, and it uses this word, it has become our tutor. See that? It has become our tutor. What does Paul mean there? You might underline that phrase. When you think of a tutor, you think of someone maybe in the learning center. Or you think of someone who stays after school and who patiently and gently helps you master a skill or a deficiency in some classroom exercise. But I want you to know it's important that you understand tutor doesn't mean that in this passage. We have to go back into the culture of the day. And in the culture of the day, a tutor in the first century was not an instructor. He was a disciplinarian. There's a real difference between the two. In fact, in the first century, tutors were often harsh to the point of cruelty. They were people who were pictured in ancient drawings as carrying a rod or a cane. And every time the young protege got out of line, they would just simply beat them back in the line. That's what they did. They were a disciplinarian. And that's the idea Paul brings into this passage about the law. The law is an unrelenting presence of suffocating judgment. Did you know that? That's what the law is all about. That at every point of slip-up is constantly whacking our conscience. Whack! Whack! That's what the law does. It's reminding us that no matter how hard we try, and for any of you who come in thinking, you know, I think I might be good enough, because if you go out on the streets of society today and you take a microphone and say, how do you get to heaven? A lot of people are going to say, well, I, I think I'm good enough. When Time Magazine did a poll and asked people, are you going to heaven? Almost 90% of Americans said, I'm going to heaven. When they asked if their friends were going to heaven, about 35% said, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure Joe's going to heaven, but I'm going to heaven. And why are you going to heaven? Because a person collapses back in our relativistic age thinking, I'm going to probably be just good enough. And that's what they say in Iran. And that's what they say as they practice Confucianism in China. That's what they say in Utah as the Mormons. That's what the Jehovah Witness who knock on your door say. If I work hard enough, and I'm good enough, just good enough, God's going to accept me. But then the law comes. And the law is a suffocating presence. It's a tutor. And it's got a rod of perfection. And the law says, no, you're not good enough. Did you lust last week? Did you lie? Did you covet what your neighbor and your best friend had this week? Were you jealous? Were you immoral? Did you get drunk? Did you cheat? Did you, did you just shade the truth just a little? And as it brings those things to fore and many more, you start feeling whack! 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 And you begin to feel, I'm not going to make it. 
I'm not good enough. Now, that's not even bringing into your life the divorces and the one-night stands and the cheating on your taxes and the constant rebellion that's in your nature. We're not even into those big things. I'm just talking about the little things. And the law brings that in there. And it says no matter how much you work, no matter how much good you do, no matter how good you may appear, the law says it's never good enough. It'll never work. That's its consistent tutoring. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, the principal point of the law is to make, is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it constantly shows us our sin that by the knowledge thereof, we may one day be humbled, terrified, bruised, broken, driven to our knees so that in the end, we will finally look up and receive the blessed seed. That's why the law is added. That's why it says in verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor. Why? To finally whack us to Christ. That we may be justified not by works. You see it there? But by faith. Listen. Few people, I want you to listen very carefully. Because we, we preach so much grace that we forget that most of the Bible is law. So listen carefully. Few people will ever appreciate the Gospel if they've never been instructed in the law. Because until you feel the bruising of the cane of the law, so that you understand how desperate you really are, grace really doesn't mean anything, and certainly not a desperate faith relationship with God. Now that may sound harsh, but even Dietrich Bonhoeffer one day in the midst of Nazi Germany said, I fear we have too much New Testament and not enough Old Testament. You know, if you grow up in a church, many of you have, or if you grew up with Christian parents who you admired, oftentimes you're in great danger. Did you know that? You're in great danger. Because one of the real dangers of growing up that way is that you can learn to superficially believe. And you can learn to superficially comply to the rules. But you don't understand how desperate is your heart for Christ in that controlled environment. And so you go out into life. And I've seen a lot of our young people and I've counseled with hundreds of people who grew up in the churches. And they go out into life superficially believing, superficially complying. And in time, that way of life fails. And the reason it fails, because the law comes. And the law begins to move into that life and it begins to reveal to you how shallow your faith, how weak your will, how selfish your motives, how far you've fallen. Whack! 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 And in the midst of that, in its own way, it will beat the unbelief and the skepticism that's in your soul out of you. It will beat the pride out of you. It will beat the anger out of you. It will beat the fear out of you. 
And if it does its rightful job when it's finished, all that's left is need. Oh God, I need You! And for the first time, God comes and says, let's come into a new agreement. Let's make a new contract. By faith that you need me desperately. And that you'll look to me in all ways the rest of your life. And you know what happens? Life is born in that moment. Real spiritual life. And you see it in people. It's in thinking about the new covenant. As Paul gets to verse 24, that he suddenly, and you can almost feel the shift, he goes to just simply celebrating the liberating power of the Gospel. See if you feel it as I read through it. Look, we've been going through that technical language, and then you get to verse 25, and he just goes, but now. You can almost feel like he throws off his judicial robes. You know, and he's stopping the debate for just a moment. He says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself in Christ. If you've clothed yourself in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, I've got good news for you. Then you are Abraham's offspring. And if you're Abraham's offspring, you are heirs. According to the promise, there's good things ahead. Do you feel the excitement there? Feel the change in his kind of momentum here at this point? Gosh, I compared it as I was studying it this week to listening on the radio to a boring football game. You know, you know how you listen to one of these games and it, and it goes to the first and second quarter and all it is is punts and penalties. Have you ever listened to a game like that? It is so boring. Just punts and penalties. No score. And so you're listening to the game on the radio and you're about to click it off when all of a sudden the announcer says, Sterner back to pass. Zips it out to uh, uh, his receiver. Lucas at the 20, 30, 40, 40, 30, 20. Touchdown, Arkansas! And you're jumping up and down. All of a sudden, the whole tenor of the game has changed. And you feel the excitement of that. Let me tell you, that's the excitement going on here. He's moved out of the technical into celebrating. And he says when faith comes, it's not Abraham that's passed away. It's the law that's passed away. There are no more have-tos. When you sell out in real faith, not superficial faith, not just playing this religious game, when you sell out anyone from anywhere, any race, any social standing, either of the two genders, they can come equally and enjoy equally this liberating adventure of faith, this new life in God, which is a new covenant. That's the Gospel. Now you know, the best way to illustrate what I'm talking about is not through a text at this point. It's through a life. So I'm going to ask if uh, Paul Osteen would come and join me on the platform for just a moment. 
And uh, as Paul comes, I want you to know Paul is a surgeon here in Little Rock. He's been a good friend for about 10 years. And this is going to be kind of an emotional moment because I know Paul real well. But I want Paul to share this gospel that I've just talked about through his life. Thanks. My name is Paul Osteen, and Robert asked me to uh, share about my adventure of faith. And really what I'd like to do is just share my story with you. I was born to a very middle-class family and raised by incredibly godly parents. They were devoted to Jesus Christ and they gave their entire lives to advancing His kingdom. I enjoyed a rather charmed life my first 30 years. I planned, planned out clear-cut goals and I achieved them with ease whether that was college or marriage or medical school or a residency program or a busy surgical practice. My lifestyle reflected godliness. My prayers were always answered and it always seemed that my dreams just came true. That was until 10 years ago when my carefully constructed world was shattered when my marriage fell apart and my wife asked me for a divorce. It was at that time I was had just begun, begun attending Fellowship Bible Church. And with the, with the counsel and the encouragement of Robert and many others, I prayed desperately that God would heal that broken relationship, relationship and He would save my marriage. During the next three agonizing years that followed, it became apparent to me that God chose not to answer my prayer. Instead, He chose to break my heart. He showed me that a lot of what I call godliness was really just self-righteousness, which was a cover-up for the real issues in my life, which were selfish ambition and anger and pride and independence and always wanting it my way when I wanted it and always wanting control. But you know what? God in His mercy showed me that He was more interested in the inside of the cup, my heart, and my character, than He was the outside. He was more interested in the clay being soft and pliable in His hand. He was more interested in a broken vessel that could house and hold His grace and His Spirit than a self-righteous vessel that couldn't. I also found out that He was very close to those with a broken heart. He did a work on my heart, and over the next few years, He began to rebuild my life. It was at that time I experienced the comfort and the encouragement of this body, Fellowship Bible Church. You who came to me, the hands, the feet, and the lips of Jesus Christ. Your love and your acceptance, your embrace, your instruction, your model and your mentoring will never, ever be forgotten by this life. And Robert, he knows this. He's been closer to me than my own brothers. He modeled for me what Jesus said. He said that a bruised reed he won't snap, and a smoldering wick he won't extinguish. I love you. During these rebuilding years, God blessed me with a beautiful wife by the name of Jennifer, and y'all know her and love her. He also gave me Soon and quickly, almost too quickly, three beautiful daughters to go with my son. <laughs> and you know, even though I didn't feel like God should, should use me, 
we were asked to take over the leadership of our community group, and surprisingly, uh, despite our shortcomings and despite our inadequacies, we saw God work around us and occasionally with us and sometimes through us, and that was exciting to us, and so we, we volunteered for anything. Four, four more years of community group leadership to the Learning Center to Helping Hands to hosting countless parties and, and gatherings. You know, if we were asked to do something, we tried hard to say yes. If we saw a need and we knew we could fill it, you know what, we tried our best to do that. We were able to build a beautiful home out in the country. And my practice has never been better. My partners are great. We have a new office with a new surgery center. And in my mid-40s, uh, as is usually the case, you kind of hit your stride in surgery. And as far as my skills are concerned, I feel that. It all made for one rosy future, except for one thing. Deep down inside, there was this impression, a stirring, almost but not quite a voice, all the while telling me that God wanted me to do something different with the rest of my life. Three years ago, using my own um, endeavors, I tried to combine this feeling this impression with what I do best, surgery. And we, we made plans to kind of maybe move into full-time medical missionary work. But when those doors closed, you know what we decided to do? We decided we would just wait. We would just listen. And we would be sensitive to his voice and to his direction. In January of this year, fairly suddenly, my dad died. And as we were driving home, on US 59, headed north, just about at the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Texas. I heard his voice. It wasn't audible, but you know what? It was unmistakable. And it basically said that, you know, for 43 years, you've been seeing the winds whip around in your life in different directions. But you know what? The wind is in one direction now. You need to give up your practice of surgery. You need to move to Houston. And you need to offer your services to your home church there in Houston. Just about the last thing I would have ever dreamed of. When I told Jen, she knew in her heart immediately that that was right. We prayed about it. And you know what we did? We chose immediately to be obedient. We just said yes. I went to Robert. We talked. And after six months of counsel, a lot of prayer, on August the 13th, I'm packing my four kids, my wife, my belongings, and my golden retriever named Sam, and we're headed to Houston. We're going to serve on staff at Lakewood Church. My official capacity will be uh, director of ministries, and it's very similar to what Craig Cheney does here, but you know, I, don't, I think only God knows what we will really do. We'll move from a big house in a small city to a small house in a huge city. We'll leave some of our very closest friends, and I mean that. We'll leave our church family that we hold so dear and has been such an anchor to our lives. We'll leave the financial security of my practice. Is it scary? You bet it is. But we're not afraid. Are we out of our comfort zone? You know it. Are we perfectly gifted for this job? I don't know, but I'm totally dependent on him. Could this be the biggest mistake of my life? From a human perspective, you'd have to say yes. Are we guaranteed success? Not a chance. 
How are we doing? Great. We're doing great. Since making this, this decision, we have experienced uh, such a presence and such a closeness and intimacy with Jesus Christ. And the peace that's the product of that relationship has been nearly uh, indescribable. I'm anxious about a lot of things. I'm anxious about nothing in this, this situation. And I know that comes from that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We know without a doubt that we have partnered with God. We've joint ventured with Him. And we're walking in the steps that God has outlined for the rest of our lives. It's so liberating to be free from our own goals, others' expectations, and simply and totally trust God completely. So if you were to ask me about uh, an adventure of faith, I could, I could honestly say, you know, I'm not sure I know much about that. But if it has to do with ordinary people and brokenness and not feeling usable and years of service and always listening and obedience and sacrifice and giving up your dreams and taking risks and uncertainty and rich intimacy with Jesus Christ, and partnering with Him, and trusting Him forever. You know what? I can tell you a little bit about that. I love you all. God bless. Now, I want to add just a couple of things that Paul didn't add in that, and that's just this. He said he was going back to his home church, and that's true. But I knew his dad, John Osteen, who was a great man. His dad started that church in inner city Houston. And uh, Paul's brother, Joel, is going to be pastoring that church. And Paul is going to be serving as a pastor along with Joel to lead a great body of people. I thought I'd just show you just briefly where Paul is going to be. Just a little video gives kind of a look of the church he's going to be in. You look up on the screen just for a moment. This is Paul speaking. There's a moment there where you'll get to see the church he's in. That's Lakewood Church, one of the most influential churches of Houston. You could put three of these churches inside that auditorium. So we're privileged to be able to have schooled one of the pastors of Lakewood Church. Paul, I want you to know it has been an absolute privilege. I'm going to ask if Paul would kneel here and I want to pray for him, pray for his ministry. Would you pray along with me? Father, I, I thank you for pain. I hate it, but I thank you for it. Because through pain, we discover that we're not good enough, or smart enough, or sharp enough to be the kind of people you want us to be. And so you drive us into a corner. But what a blessed corner it is, the corner of faith. I thank you that I met Paul in pain, but I'm leaving him in faith. And I just give you such praise for that. And for the fact that you brought Jennifer into his life and what a tremendous helpmate she has become. And I thank you that together they go in agreement to Houston, Texas, to assume responsibility of a great body of people who are doing a great work. 
And as Paul said, it is only by faith. There are no guarantees. We've talked long, long, long about that. But Lord, I pray that You would give him wisdom and power way beyond where he is now. That the, that the decisions that he makes, that the strategies that he employs, that the manner in which he does things, that that would only be You moving through him using it as a broken vessel to allow this church to continue to do what his father's dreams were in the very beginning, and that's to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. I pray that you'd bless him. I pray that he and Joel would become an incredible team together. And Lord, I pray that you would allow that church to make the necessary succession from leader to leader that would allow that church to continue to be the influence that it is in a great city. So I pray that you go with this young man, my brother, my friend, and bless his life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.